Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our appreciated radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter and here with Stefan Hostetter. How you doing? Good in my bedroom. Ah, yes. The That's evening it. sun penetrating. And soon we are going to speak with Lauren Latour about uh, flooding in Fort McMurray last week as well as the a potential uh, shift, partial shift, somewhat shift, who knows, towards <laughs> geothermal in uh, Western Canada, specifically Alberta, turning oil rigs into geothermal electricity generators. Um, and we're also at the end. Saren Kaster has conducted an interview with Jesse Golem, uh, who was part of the original Ontarian um, Universal Basic Income pilot, started by Kathleen Wynne, axed by Doug Ford, uh, and she gained international uh, recognition as a photographer thanks to that basic income, but also because she started a picture series called Humans of Basic Income in which she took pictures of people with signs uh, showing how basic income ha- had helped them out of poverty. But first, we're going to take a brief venture into, uh, I don't know, I don't know what to call it. It's a brief venture. It's a brief it's venture a, it's into the world. Venture. Because uh, the future is very uncertain, as is obvious. Uh, It's entirely unknown what will happen with the pandemic. It's bad news everywhere. It's hard to think about anything coherently. And even though we're in Toronto, the reckless madness with which the virus is being handled in the States is a source of unspeakable worry, as those in power want to wield violence rather than commit to any even semi-rational course that would benefit regular people and the generations to come. In the midst of this pandemic, the U.S. is still trying to overthrow the Venezuelan government, is still favoring nameless piles of wealth concentrated in hedge funds and corporations instead of the human beings who do the essential work to keep food on the table and to keep as few people as possible dying from the virus. Anti-lockdown protesters uh, that have been cheered on by the U.S. president are turning murderous, and living while non-white is increasingly becoming even more of a death sentence in the U.S., and not just because black people are being randomly shot in the streets, but because black people are dying from COVID in ludicrously high numbers, and because working people are being asked to choose between risking their lives on the front lines or going without food or rent, because bailout packages have been criminally inadequate when it comes to workers, and because much of the U.S. government doesn't care who it sacrifices to keep the economy moderately afloat and to make sure rich people stay rich. Moving on to climate news, a new study from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is showing that unless global greenhouse gas emissions are quickly and drastically reduced, up to 3 billion people around the world will likely be dealing with heat levels that are, quote, nearly unlivable in 50 years. In addition, a sentient bag of skin that was at some point blown up into a tortoise shape by the breath of an unseen demon clown, known colloquially as Mitch McConnell, believes that it is the perfect time to attempt to confirm a wildly unqualified 38-year-old climate denier to a lifetime appointment on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals which is both the second highest court in the United States and the, quote, most important court for climate change policy and regulation, 
as described by Emily Atkin for her climate blog, Heated. Atkin disturbingly points out that this man, Justin Reed Walker, who used to work for Big Tobacco, as well as that drunken rapist Brett Kavanaugh, claimed that he was ethically prohibited from accepting the science of climate change because, quote, those issues are implicated by pending or impending litigation, implying that the legitimacy of climate science is still being debated in U.S. courts, which it certainly is not, and it is a very abnormal thing for a potential judge to say. But to end this intro with some gloriously empowering magical rhetoric, I'm going to quote from the Instagram account of Edgar Fabian Frias, a queer mutant magician and social media oracle who creates the greatest inspirational art ever conceived, using flashing text on top of images of aliens and tigers and cats and candles and flamingos and so forth. He writes, quote, Our care is eternal. Our empathy is a portal. Algorithms will not keep us apart. The earth does not consent to capitalism. Workers are more important than bosses or presidents. I trust the guidance of our beloved moon more than the word of decrepit and useless presidents. I am organized by the cycles of the moon, not by profit margins. Gaia is shaping me into the mutant I am meant to be. Our imagination and creative visions will save us. Godex is bringing together everything that was separated by colonization and capitalism. We cast out the illness of greed from our collective consciousness. Empathy is resistance to state-sanctioned negligence and violence. Migrant workers are more important than presidents. We have been caring for one another for longer than this colonialist state has existed. Big talk, speedboat. Pray to God I don't get repo. Didn't go to college for a free throw. People getting killed through the peephole. And now we are joined again by uh, Lauren Latour, our Ottawa correspondent. And we're going to start this section with uh, the oil and gas industry. So Emma Graney uh, published an article a week ago for the Globe and Mail in which she highlights an unspecified cluster of industry groups, geothermal and oil drilling companies in Western Canada, that have aligned with the Vancouver think tank Clean Energy Canada to promote the use of existing oil rigs for geothermal electricity production. Kevin Krausert, president and CEO of Beaver Drilling Limited, told Garney that this proves that oil and gas can be part of the solution, and it will help the oil sands towards their goal of becoming net zero by 2050. Uh, uh, man, I have a brief question about how on earth anyone thinks the tar sands begin net zero by 2050. But to quickly move on from that for a second, just to add a little more to the story, um, I want to highlight three different responses to Alberta's current woes. Uh, the, the first is, of course, Jason Kenney, the premier, which we covered a little bit last week in our conversation with Emma. But uh, but he, he's continued or is he 
has ongoing his deregulation spree, which has seen him under the guise of COVID-19. Alberta has amended the Oil and Gas Conservation Act, the Pipeline Act, the Environmental Protection and Enhancement Act, the Water Act, the Public Lands Act, and the newly implemented Technology Innovation and Emission Reductions Regulation to mitigate against, quote, undue hardship to the oil and gas industry. Uh, now, obviously, Lauren and I spoke a little bit a couple weeks ago about how the oil and gas industry consi- considers undue hardship or harm. But again, uh, the second comes from Alberta's Energy Futures Lab, which argues that oil economy must be get, must be helped at this time, but that this time should also be used to to, to it should be seized to begin a larger pivot towards, you know, as mentioned, geothermal, hydrogen energy. Uh, lithium, bitumen beyond combustion, so basically like still pulling bitumen out of the ground but using it for other other goods, and artificial intelligence. <laughs> uh, honestly, the one thing I did not know, and I have not looked into this, so I can't comment any further, is apparently lithium is a byproduct of whatever they do in the tar sands. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I have I have not looked further to this, but uh, the, in the article I read from Kent Alberta's Energy Futures Lab, which is like a totally reputable thing, and they they are like they're legit, and they know their stuff. Somewhere during the tar sands existence, lithium shows up, and <laughs> it's apparently could be used for other things. Um, and then the third. Uh, is a declaration today from the Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, and the Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet, uh, who declared the tar sands, quote, dead. Uh, obviously, a little longer, they had a little longer press conference than that, but that was the gist of it. Um, and both called for support for the workers in the form of transition funding, but that federal funding for things like oil infrastructure, like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, should be redirected. And so this is sort of the... The range. And what's interesting is that no one here is saying, like, just let all of Alberta's economy entirely tank. But there's definitely a range of responses in in how they see the recovery and the importance of oil within that recovery. Uh, So to you, Lauren. I guess to to sort of bring it back to the original story and then and then pull pull out from there. um, There was a specific quote you sort of referenced, David, where the one of the sort of leaders behind this movement of converting old oil and gas wells into geothermal um, wells, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's not a well if it's for geothermal, but it's a a tool, a thing. Anyway, he said, it's like, oh yes, it's such a great opportunity for, for the oil and gas industry to become net zero by 2050. This is by utilizing geothermal for their operations. This is exactly how they can do it. And reading that article, I had been so on board with geothermal being like what these wells were converted into up until I got to this point. Because again, oil and gas operations, especially ones within the Albertan tar sands, oil sands, cannot be net zero. Um, because in order for something to be truly net zero, we have to take into consideration the downstream emissions and effects. And 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 I don't know, that that would be like me selling mouse traps and then trying to say that I am not responsible for the death of a single mouse. Like (laughs) just because I'm maybe not the one killing the mouse with the trap doesn't mean I'm not tangentially responsible. So anyway, the idea that just because we're using geothermal to power the oil sands doesn't mean the oil sands don't in turn produce carbon emissions. Anyway, um, 
and yeah, and then and then Jason Kenny and his deregulation spree, and it just sort of further drives home the point that um, as long as we have a government in Alberta with the goals that the Kenny government currently has, and that intention to go down with the ship that is the oil and gas industry and sing its praises until the very end, we're never gonna get we're never going to get the kind of shift in economy that we need to see out of Alberta in order to A, save those workers and B, try to save us from planetary destruction. Jason Kenney continues to demonstrate time and time again that his priorities aren't with his citizens, his priorities aren't with an inhabitable planet. And it's simply to increase the bottom line for these companies as much as is physically possible and keep his relationship with those companies as strong as is physically possible. And that's depressing, but it's a reality that we all need to grasp the concept of, Um, which is kind of cool because we can see from the blocks and the greens and their statement today and their press release today that they are fully prepared to do that. They are fully prepared to throw out their relationship with the conservatives if they ever had one and any sort of semblance of a relationship with the Albertan government at this point in making this statement that the tar sands are dead. And it's, it's refreshing I think I'm going to use that word refreshing to see party leadership owning up to the fact that this is going to be the fate of this industry and this is going to be the fate of of this specific economy. And it's something that we all need to face. And um, not only is it refreshing to see it coming from any party leadership, it's refreshing to see it come from two parties saying it as a united front together, especially when it's a party like the Bloc that really does have a lot of control within the House right now. Maybe not right now. The House isn't really doing anything right now. But within this sitting government, the bloc has a lot of control. The Greens are in a really good position as a party that's on the rise and has a couple solid seats there. Um, So for them to come out as a united front and say that this is what they see the history of that industry being is very cool. Yeah. And it's, it, and honestly, it's the, it's really the only thing that, that could potentially save the workers that are there, right? Like there's a level, I think it's whenever you sort of, the, the, the goal of the Alberta government really, I think is to frame all of this as, well, they don't like, they want us to die. They don't like care about you at all. But like, you know, you know, this is like, this is when you are, this is like, you know, you could example the cod fisheries. Like if people were, were I'm sure at that time arguing that this, that was unsustainable, that we had to find another way to do that. And, and I'm sure they were, they were entirely, I'm sure, beleaguered by the concept that, that they just didn't understand that they didn't want the good fishermen to survive. And then that industry completely fell off a cliff and they all ironically, and somewhat sadly had to move out to Alberta to find jobs and you know and, and we're just we're going to see this whole thing again unless we're able to get a sustainable transition forehand and it's not like the people right now Alberta's doing a great job looking after its people right now anyways I'm going to use that as a quick segue to the other story we have because I want to make sure we get to it and I shall uh so here are a few words from uh Chris Moray a contributor about the Fort McMurray floods And he writes that last week, a tragedy struck yet again at Fort McMurray. As amid the spring thaw of the Athabasca River, a 24-kilometer-long ice jam formed, causing severe flooding and submerging a large part of the downtown area. As of the 28th, up to 15,000 residents had been forced to leave their homes, and more than 5,000 people had signed up to stay at evacuation centers. The city was prepared for the possibility of emergency evacuation due to flooding or fires, including preparations for orchestrating evacuations in the midst of the current pandemic. 
Staff and volunteers are wearing masks and gloves, and services at evacuation centers are being cleaned regularly, and social distancing measures are being enforced. The flooding is a harsh blow to a community beset by recent troubles. As Canada's putative oil town, the Centre for Operations for the Tar Sands Oil Projects in the area, Fort McMurray is suffering doubly from the coronavirus, as the economic slump brought on by the pandemic is compounded by the oil crash from the Saudi-Russian price war, followed by worldwide dive in demand. What's worse, only four years ago, the municipality experienced a devastating wildfire that forced uh, 80,000 evacuations and destroyed 24,000 homes, and many of the people who were forced to evacuate this time around had only just rebuilt. The situation in Fort McMurray illustrates uh, what may become a regular occurrence for communities across Canada and the world. Fort McMurray experiences seasonal flooding as a matter of its physical location uh, on the bank of a large river. However, increasingly severe, frequent, uh, increasingly frequent severe weather events are a predicted effect of climate change, uh, much as increasingly frequent disease outbreaks are a predicted, predicted effect of our globalized economic system. As Fort McMurray starkly illustrates, our long-term ability to deal with either form of crisis is hampered by the simultaneous occurrence of other adverse effects, and the toll on communities becomes even more burdensome. In that sense, a parallel can be drawn between medical comorbidities in an individual, underlying conditions that weaken a person's chances with coronavirus, and the situation in a place like Fort McMurray. Way back in 2003, the World Health Organization released a study warning that climate change would increase the danger of disease outbreaks. Rising temperatures and wetter climates mean more bugs, increasing the incidence of malaria and other insect-borne diseases. Reduction in arable land due to climate change will push agribusinesses further into wilderness, while food scarcity leads to an increase in the consumption of bushmeat, which are both potential causes of the current virus outbreak. Just as the coronavirus poses a more severe threat to a diabetic patient, pandemics will have a more devastating impact on societies beleaguered by extreme weather events. In the case of Fort McMurray, flooding, fires, and pandemics all present dangers to life and livelihood, and as such represent comorbidities that mutually compound each other. Yeah, and this is, this, this, so this, we keep talking about the thing we talked about before as well, but I wanted to make sure we had that covered, um, in part because it, this is an example of, you know, there, with not even covered here is the fact that we're quite expecting right now, I think it was today or yesterday, a report came out saying that we should expect like much worse than average forest fires across Western Canada as well. And, and this is part of the problem when you create these societies that are so brittle with like, you know, it can't withstand one, it might like we're, I would say we're handling COVID, but not nailing it in this country. Um, and yet add in a forest fire or flooding in Montreal um, or this flooding here in Fort McMurray and suddenly you have a very different world. And I think that that is the big thing of that, that I think environmentalists are constantly trying to remind us, which we have yet to really internalize. Yeah, yeah. And, and looking specifically at sort of the situation in Fort McMurray right now, which I feel like hasn't hasn't been good in years, right? I think that economy initially started to slump back in 2014 and it hasn't really cut a break since. Um, so, so I guess sort of I hope backtracking a sec to the comments we made on what the block and the green said, I certainly hope if anybody is listening and lives in Fort McMurray that, that we, we would never make light of the situation of those communities and the people who live there by any means. Um, 
but I, but I think it's important to remember that like when we talk about transitioning away from oil and gas, we're not talking about transitioning away from caring about the people who, who produce that oil and gas, who produce those resources for us. Um, it's about, I, I know the word transition is scary and unwelcome in a lot of spaces, but it's about digging into new things like this geothermal project and finding new ways to generate income for these people. And, and yes, expansion of the energy industry and diversification of it in different ways. But, but anyway, um, yeah, when you were talking about sort of the, the fragility of, of these economies and the fragility of these cities, Fort McMurray is, is of course, it's, it's fragile from an economic standpoint because it's entirely built upon a single, a single resource really on the oil and gas industry. Um, once that goes there, there really wasn't, there were indigenous communities in that area, but Fort McMurray itself as a city wasn't much of a city before the tar sands boom in, in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, so not only is it, is it economically fragile, but it is, it's geographically quite remote. I think a lot of us in Southern Canada don't really understand just how far North Fort McMurray is. Um, I know a lot of people have, have family that fly out there and it's hours to fly out there. It's several hours away from Edmonton. So it's, it's a city that if you fly into, it's expensive. If you drive into, it takes a hell heck of a lot of time. Um, so it's hard to get resources to a remote town like that. So when it is experiencing problems like flooding and COVID, it's, it's hard to resource. It's hard to support. Um, so yeah, I guess all that suffice to say, I'm, I'm sorry for the folks in Fort McMurray right now because they're going through a very, very tough time when, and they're kind of being kicked when they were down. Yeah. Well, and, and what's, I think even perhaps what I'm not realizing as you were speaking, actually, is, is actually how much more dangerous even just a transition or any type of sort of response is going to be to Fort McMurray that is not done in a way because there's no reason to live there. Like, like you, 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 if you've bought a house in Fort McMurray and and there's no not an industry to keep you there anymore, you have put a bunch of money into a thing that is not going to pay itself back. You know, it's it is it is a truly dangerous position or a risky position to be put in um, as a as a worker who has to work there now. You know, and 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 I would be very surprised uh, if the if the oil companies that are making them work up there are going to allow them to to comfortably uh, and help transition them uh, from uh, to live somewhere else if if that if if we no longer are are pulling oil from the ground in that area like it is i, I just i just had this sort of half moment of realization of like this is like it's like gold rush towns and other other areas which which you know where there's one big industry and that industry vanishes and then suddenly why are people there and 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 all the investment that was in that space is 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 you know washed away Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a quintessential boom bust town, and unfortunately, you're gonna have a whole lot of people with eight hundred thousand or million dollar homes and no one to sell them to when this industry goes on, goes under. Because not only is the industry a sunset industry because of reasons related to climate change, it's a sunset industry for reasons related to AI development and tech development. We know that autonomous vehicles are coming to these to these mines and these tar sands operations. So even if theoretically we were to continue to operate these mines at full bore, knowing full well the, the climate sort of catastrophe that will result from it. Those jobs still aren't going to be there because autonomous vehicles are coming down the metaphorical pipe, so to speak, and are going is going to result in a whole lot of job displacement. So regardless, Fort McMurray and the and the people who live there are going to have some hard economic times going forward. Mm-hmm.
And now we are going to turn to an interview Saren recently conducted with Jesse Golem about universal basic income, and it begins with Jesse introducing herself. So my name is Jesse Gollum, um, and uh, two years ago I was a part of a basic income pilot. Um, in Ontario, they had a basic income pilot that was uh, put forward by Kathleen Wynne's Liberal government, um, and um, I was one of the recipients. So um, I signed up for it in December of 2017, and then in February of 2018, I was told that I was approved and I would be getting a basic income. So um, every month, the government put $700 into my bank account. No questions asked, no strings attached. Um, I still had to work like $700 is not a lot of money. It covered my rent, um, but I was able to um, pursue the jobs I wanted to. So before I had basic income, I had four jobs um, and it was all gig work, contract jobs, no protections, no benefits. Um, and it was really, really hard to stay afloat. So even I was working four jobs, working nonstop, like up early in the morning, working and not getting home late at night um, until late at night. And like my home was basically a place where I could shower and sleep and that's it. Like I didn't have time to make dinner for myself um, ever. And, um, so I, when I got basic income, that was huge. It changed so many things in my life. Like I was able to quit all those jobs and focus on building my business, which was a photography business. So I was, and I was finding that I had more time on my hands and I was actually making more money than I ever was locked into all these contract jobs. Um, because I was able to like determine my prices, um, find my own clients. Like the business was my responsibility. Um, so I, I was finding it was even like better for me economically. And, and I was giving, I was able to buy more things and, you know, get myself out of poverty, um, with this. But then, um, there was an election, um, the new government was elected, Doug Ford's conservative government. And despite making an election promise multiple times to not cancel the basic income pilot, one of the very first things that they did was cancel the basic income pilot. So I was furious. Um, and then I started doing this portrait series where I started taking pictures of other basic income recipients and what were they using the money for? Um, that portrait series has gone viral. Um, it's been covered by every single major media outlet. Um, it has been exhibited in um, a lot of large, um, like it was part of um, Supercrawl in Hamilton, um, the Contact Photography Festival in Toronto. Um, I exhibited the photos at the Basic Income Conference in New York City and the Basic Income Conference in India last year. Um, and had this uh, pandemic had not happened, I would have been um, exhibiting the photos in Australia this year as well. So it's taken me on this really large, crazy journey that doesn't really seem to stop or end. But it's really cool because like I found myself like part of this world basic income movement. And there are some brilliant people and friends from all over the world, um, economists, academics, CEOs, artists and musicians like myself, um, students, all kinds of people who are really on board with this movement. So it's been really amazing to see that and be on this exceptionally weird and wonderful journey. And um, I'm it's not, I'm not stopping until we find ourselves with the basic income. And especially in light of right now with the pandemic and everything that's happening, um, the conversation could not be more relevant. So I'm um, Saren Kester, um, And I, one of the things that I thought was really 
so interesting about talking to Jesse about these things is that we're obviously in, in violent agreement, as I like to say, about what some of the outcomes should look like, what the goals are, um, but arrived there in very, very different ways and from very different places. So, you know, so that I, I come to it from the point of view of the fact that, that not only COVID was entirely predictable, not the specifics, but the, the situation we're in was essentially why I've been volunteering my time for 17 years, because this was so predictable and tons of people were predicting it and we should have been ready. And there's a number of reasons for that, but also that this is also just one of the punches that's coming. So the fact that, you know, not just that we have this thing that we have to get through right now, but that this is just the first punch. And no matter what we do, we're already committed to a number of things. So there's going to be, it might be a flood, it might be a fire, it might be this, it might be that, but there's going to be a second punch and a third punch and a fourth punch, you know, even if we do undertake rapid action. And so from that point of view, we have all these things we need to do, we we have to have a stable society as we do it and and changing priorities and shifting priorities especially at all in a major area like oil and gas for instance um but needing to make widespread changes across our society there's just no way to do that without just absolutely throwing the job market up in the air right and that i think that's one of the reasons why without you know, the additional details, one of the reasons why we haven't had action is no one knows how to solve that problem is like, well, it, this is going to cost people jobs to do all this rapid change. And it would, which is why I think that there's just no way to deal with what is actually going on right now, short of a UBI, because, you know, I don't know why I like this metaphor, but I always imagine like lifting up your skirt right before you do a big spin. We, we don't know where we're going to land and we might be a little bit dizzy. We, we can't be stepping on our skirt here just because we're afraid of like modesty. I'm, I'm torturing the metaphor now. Um, but so that's number that's number one. Number two, much quicker, is that um, I was funding my ability to do this for this whole time working in hospitality. Um, I've run small businesses. Um, I've managed people. I have tons of professional skills. But then I got cancer, and I can't work in uh, hospitality anymore, even though I'm able-bodied. I have what would be described as a, an invisible disability, which has been very, very hard to pivot because even though I have all these advanced skills, um, I haven't been able to re-enter the job market. Um, if I had just the security that was necessary to be able to build my own thing, I would have done that already. And I know that I have the ability. It's not sort of aspirational. I could if I knew that I could plan into the future. So for me, this is very like practical. Um, and the third thing is, well, similar to the last point is, you know, I'm also now um, 37 and I've just on two weeks of uh, hormone therapy, I'm affirming my gender as a woman, and that is a wonderful process that I'm going through. But it also means that um, I'm about to enter a world of hurt as far as discrimination is concerned. And the thing is, that shouldn't matter. And so one of the other things that I see this, and we'll talk about this more, Jesse, I'm sure, but this idea of like unlocking potential, and it's not charity, it's that you're freeing people to actually participate in the economy, <clears throat> is that you know we do all these there are all, all sorts of really well-meaning companies that have all sorts of diversity and inclusion uh, efforts, whether you're talking about the LGBT community or, um, you know, First Nations people, rights and their relationships to government um, or people of color and all sorts of things, you know, they want you to apply. But at the end of the day, there's really no way to guarantee it. There's no way to guarantee that those people aren't being discriminated against. And we know that discrimination is out there. At the same time, even a really good company and companies I've applied for that have exceptional inclusion um, practices 
Still, these are usually companies with a little bit more money and they're, they really don't often have entry-level positions. And so even though they would love to hire a trans woman, that person just doesn't have enough experience. Well, where am I supposed to get it? I'm supposed to get it at the bottom of the job market where there's the least protections, right? That you got to start in the mailroom somewhere. Yeah. And um, I really, um, I really resounded with what you were saying about like, you know, you, you like having an invisible, invisible disability and not being able to work, even though you have all these ideas and ways that you can contribute. And like, I, I, and, and I kind of felt like I, I'm like, I am healthy. I am able-bodied. I'm very lucky. I don't have um, any, any disabilities apart from a whole lot of depression and mental health issues, but um, I, um, I've always found that like, you know, I, I could have been a photographer 10 years ago, but if I, I don't, you, you have, you need to have that capital investment. You need to have that like guarantee that there's a, a floor. Um, and I've, ha I've never had that. I've talked to other people who are like very successful photographers who have made a lot of money and who have like, you know, made that their full-time work in the industry. And they've all said, oh, my, my, my spouse worked while I, um, while I work, pursued my business or oh, I had this capital investment or I had this, um, this opportunity or this person bought me this camera. So like, it, it's always that. And I've never had that. I'm really interested in the mental health aspect because yeah. You know, it's so obvious, and I think because it's so obvious, it's what makes people so uncomfortable to, to talk to talk about it. Which is, you know, pick a random friend that someone has, you know, and who works at an office, and and you know, they're sort of lunchtime chatter. Oh, if I'd gone half an hour without my lunch, I could, I, I just can't function until I've had lunch. Everybody's like that, right? Different yeah. people have different body needs. I can't um, function but, without but, my coffee or whatever. Right, yeah. being under new like being like nutri nutrient deprived impacts your ability to function as a human being at a biological level. Yeah. And so if people aren't able to feed themselves, you're basically just, you're pulling them out of the economy. They can't participate. And so what's so upsetting about that is not only is that true, is that that is then used as a, well, look, they don't work very hard or look like they, they didn't do well on that test. Well, it's because they were running at 10% power and you wouldn't pass that test if you if you hadn't eaten a solid meat meal in three weeks and 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 sort of the hypocrisy that like the cheapest food is like the worst food for you and the least healthy it's all the processed crap like i remember a couple of years ago i needed to access a food bank um and i went to the food bank and they got i got a bundle of food um but when i took it home and looked at it it was all just like chef boyardee canned pasta and and all this like processed stuff that I was like, I don't eat this. I never do. I never have. I've always been told this stuff is bad. And, and I'm like, if this is what I'm getting because I'm poor, like no wonder people get stuck in poverty. I've read story studies and statistics that show that people's IQ points actually drop in poverty because all that mental energy is spent on just trying to survive. And, and exactly what you're saying, like running on 10%. No, yeah, nobody's going to succeed if, you know, they, they're not eating healthy, good food and have access to it. Yeah. And it's crazy. Like, like a lot of the naysayers um, and people against basic income would say, you got to work hard, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Your wealth is a reflection of your success. So if you are poor, then it is your fault. Um, but I don't think that they factor in or consider the fact that poverty costs all of us as a society. Like our tax dollars are paying for those people in those hospital beds that are there because they have health problems that got that came from not being able to live a healthy life because of poverty. And we pay for that. And, and there's a huge link between poverty and crime. 
and and our tax dollars pay for those jail cells too. Um, people like um, it was Thomas More back in the 1500s, so like 500 years ago when he wrote Utopia, talked about this, and he said, "Why are we penalizing people for stealing bread? Why why don't we just give them an income so that they can buy bread?" which is better for the person selling the bread, better for the person buying the bread, better for the entire society, because then that person isn't in jail. So if somebody's coming up with this idea 500 years ago, like, and it's still the same concept today, you know, it's still as relevant today as it was then. Like, you know, the wealth doesn't trickle down. The wealth is hoarded at the top by the richest people. Um, you know, like if, if these, we, we shouldn't have billionaires, but we do. Now we have like an ultra rich class. Like this, this system is, is, has been just a huge lie that has just made the, um, the, the differences, like the discrepancy between the rich and the poor, just the more, more and more and more stark as this goes on. And then in the light of like a disaster, like COVID-19, it's only seen worse. Like, like the people, the, the, the people who will be hit the hardest and suffer the worst are going to be the poorest people in our society. The rich people, they'll be fine, but because they'll have all the access to all the finest doctors and healthcare and professionals, and they have their mansions that they can self-isolate in and all the good food in, in the world. And, you know, that's not like, there's so many of us that is not the case. And again, we all pay for it. One of the reasons why people sort of turn their nose up at, at having these types of conversations, just like as a conversation, like over coffee or something, is because like so much of it is just so ridiculous on its face. And, and I obviously we understand this, but I think there's a lot of people that don't understand this. It's not a matter of people have enough to survive and we're just trying to give them extra. It's that people are already operating at like temporary emergency battery power and we're asking them to do that till they die. And that's a huge portion of the economy. And the amount that it would cost from the people who can afford it would never notice it gone. I th like that's the thing that really just sickens me is how hard people fight for this without actually having any understanding of the amounts of money involved or what the relative situations are. You know, never mind, you know, we could talk forever about all of the benefits that people who could participate in the economy could, should do. I just think that people are really out to lunch or potentially even willfully ignorant of just how desperate a gigantic portion of us really is, are and, and live the majority of our lives. Yeah, like, um, like, because again, like what you're saying, like, you know, if people have those, like it goes to basic needs first. And that's why I even saw when I did my portrait series, all those other basic income recipients, they were saying, I'm buying healthy food for the first time ever, or I am shopping locally, or I'm like, you know, I'm getting out of poverty. Um, a lot of that and seeing like physical transformations of people who are getting out of poverty and like all of a sudden they look healthier and they're cleaner and they're wearing nicer clothing and they're buying healthy food. Like you can actually see a physical transformation. Um, and I'd rather my money go towards that, like taxpayer money go towards that. And I think uh, like part of it too, yeah, is that like people, you know, like, especially I live in um, Toronto, it's a big city, we have a certain degree of, it's certainly not the worst in North, North America by any means, but we, like any other major city, have a homeless population. I thankfully have a home, but, you know, I'm, 
I'm a non-religious person who likes a good saying when they hear one. And so I'm a non-religious person who has a tendency to say there, but for the grace of God, go I every time I pass a, a homeless person, because I recognize that it really is just a combination of privilege and luck that I'm, that I'm not right there. And so that's sort of the attitude that I have about it. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, um, it makes me think of a few things like um, I, um, I actually have a religious studies major um, um, and that's why I studied in university. And um, I always think um, in the Bible that Jesus has this parable um, where he, there's a rich man and he has three servants and he's going away on a vacation. So he gives the three servants a sum of money. Um, the first servant um, takes the money and he goes and buys some cows or something. Um, the second servant takes the money, puts it in the bank. And the third servant buries the money in a hole in the ground. Um, so when the rich man gets back, he goes to the first guy and he's just like, good job. You bought some cows. So you took my money, you put it into a product and you have now doubled the money and you've made a profit. Awesome. Lovely. Great job. Second guy, he was like, good job. You put it in the bank. Like, you know, it's not really doing anything, but it is accumulating interest. So I'm making more money. Good job. Um, third guy, he was like, you put it in the hole in the ground why'd you do that? And, you know, like not good job. Um, and I'm like, if people want to sit on their ass and play video games, they can go ahead. I don't care. But like on my basic income of $700 a month, a life of sitting on my ass and playing video games meant that I'd be living in my parents' basement, eating ramen, um, and not really having a great life. And I don't think anybody wants that, nor have we actually seen that. Like there are actual studies that have shown, like, because there's been a myriad, like, multitude of basic income pilots that have taken place all over the world in the last 50 years, two of them in Canada, um, there's been a bunch in the United States, a bunch in South America, Africa, Europe, all over the place, and um, there have been studies that have seen, like, do these people work less if they're given a basic income? Um, does it create a disincentive to work? And the answer has been overwhelmingly no. People either work the same amount or they work more. Um, because like, like, you know, even if I go back to my example, like $700 a month, I made more money because I had that income floor and I was able to pursue photography and really, really put all my time and energy into my business, which in turn created more money. Um, or I could sell my ass and eat ramen, but I no, I didn't do that and nobody did. Um, and I also hate when people do that assumption of like, oh, we can't give the crackhead money or these, we can't give these people money. Like, it's like this assumption that if humans are left to their own devices, they'll be lawless animal citizens that will just, you know, turn to chaos and anarchy. And I don't think that that, that is true at all. And it also feels very selfish to say that. Like one of the people who said that to me is again, somebody from my hometown who's um, an extremely religious person. Um, and I was like, you think that humans, like that, that the creation that God has made um, is all animalistic and all chaotic and all hellbound, but you think that you're better than them. Well, and that's at the same point as, you know, as much as it's very much personal, you know, we both talked it, uh, in different ways about how this is a personal issue for us and it's a personal issue for a lot of people. But at the same point, that's also why I think it's so important to, as, as personal and emotional as it can be, um, to talk about it as often as possible in really cold, practical terms, yeah. um, because that is the only thing with any chance of cutting through the noise. Yeah. And historically, basic income is actually a very conservative idea. The idea of basic income being like a liberal, social justice, anti-poverty, socialism idea um, is um, quite new. 
Um, so like, like basic income became really popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, Milton Friedman, who's a conservative economist, like championed basic income, and Richard Nixon, like a Republican, almost passed a bill in the House bringing forward a basic income. And it was oddly enough, um, it, was, it was shut down by the Democrats, the G Democratic Senate. Um, so you would think like, you know, a liberal government would not be opposed to basic income, but historically they were. Um, and even in um, when the liberal government in Ontario um, put forward the basic income pilot in 2017, 2018, the one that I was on, Kathleen Wynne consulted um, Hugh Siegel, who is a conservative senator, um, to, to do this pilot. So he was part of the main team, a conservative. Um, and, and the reason that like, it's such a good, it's, it's been, it's, it's been championed by conservatives is because they see it as being cost effective. Like they are looking at the dollars, they are looking at the bottom line and they're seeing like, you know, instead of having all these patchworks of social programs that are keeping people in poverty and keeping people stuck, all this red tape, all this um, bureaucracy and administrative costs, let's just get rid of all of that and just give people money. And we, it's more efficient, it's more effective. People know what they're doing with their money then we're good. Um, and that's why it's been seen as a conservative idea. Um, so it's like, how to communicate that to current conservatives and, and to realize that it is like, we are talking about the bottom line and money and saving money and that this is good for everybody. Um, and I don't know, I've, I've struggled in trying to get people to understand this. It seems so obvious to me. And, and I'm not really qualified, like I'm not an economist, I'm not a mathematician at all. I'm a piano teacher and a photographer. And I'm like, if I can understand this, then <laughs> why? <laughs>
any able-bodied person in Canada who was on a UBI, who was in physically capable of it, who wasn't otherwise trying to get themselves, you know, more equitable employment, wasn't trying to leverage that in some other way, would be open, love that. So people I know do that for fun. And there are all these important things that we can do that would benefit everyone, that we can just like, create the pathway for people to do it, give them the freedom to actually do it. And we can actually treat this like an, like an actual team sport. Like we're all on the same team working towards the same goal. We're all going to contribute our own thing in our own way. We don't need to have somebody counting the pennies here and there at the end of the day is everyone's going to benefit. Yeah. And it's going to be a lot less like punitive and penalizing of a system. Everybody has dignity. Um, and, everybody benefits and society benefits and the economy benefits. Like this is only good for everybody. Um, yeah. And it's just like, how do you, how do you change that idea? Like how do you switch that thought from like, I, I don't see a basic income as like a government handout. I see it as an investment in humans. I, and you know, I see it as in another way to go even further than that as simply extending to the individual humans, the things to which governments already extend to all forms of businesses. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, as much as I don't think it ultimately matters as far as my priorities um, that this is paid for in any particular way. Um, but I think if you're not at least willing to talk about a maximum of some type or some type of, down downward system that kicks into the scream stream so that everybody gets lifted up like we were saying earlier that whole lie about you know the all boats raising when the ocean raises well that's how you actually do that let's let's stop the lie i love the idea doesn't work on its own turns out humans are kind of corrupt and selfish and short-sighted but hey the idea was fine so let's just make it required let's let's do all that stuff yeah, it, it's interesting, like um, Alaska gives all of its citizens a basic income and has been doing so since the 1980s. So um, they take all of the dividend from oil, um, the, the revenue from, from oil in Alaska and that industry gets distributed to every single citizen in, in that state um, as an entitlement. You live on the land, you are, you are entitled therefore to the profit of the land. That is the view of that. So even like you know, like Sarah Palin, crazy conservative Republican Alaskan, loves the the, the Alaskan div dividend. They all love it. Like it's it's all, and it's not a lot of money. It's like an average of two thousand dollars a year. Um, but it's still like like it's 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 seen as their entitlement. And and I think we should be thinking of it that way. Um, Guy Standing is um, uh, an an author and a huge um, basic income champion. And he wrote a book called The Plunder of the Commons. And it's a really great book, but it talks about the idea of like, we don't pay for the air that we breathe and we shouldn't have to pay for the water we drink. Um, these, these things that we as humans need, the commons, the land that we live on, um, the space that we inhabit, air that we breathe. So we should be getting a dividend as part of that idea of the commons. And I love that idea. He um, spoke about it at the basic income conference when I was in India last year, and it was just so inspiring. Um, and, and I think people need to, I'd like people to understand that or think of it that way. And the, and the key overarching part that the entire point of this conversation is about creating an, uh, an outcome that is better than now for everyone. Yes, especially when we're in the middle of a pandemic and figuring out the frightening reality of when this pandemic ends and what kind of world are we going to re-enter into? 
what is a post-pandemic world going to look like? It's it's going to be different, and and there will be economic devastation. And how do we weather that? 